congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as we gather once again for worship as God's people this afternoon, we want to be reminded from the hand of the Apostle Paul and certainly by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of something that should be with us as Christians all the time in our lives. This is not something that only new Christians or newly committed Christians need to hear. This is something to which we are all called, from the youngest here to the oldest. And to properly understand what Paul is saying here, instead of just jumping feet first right into um, Romans 12, verses 1 to 3, we want to take a little bit of time, just a moment, and look at it in its context. And so we want to recall looking back on the previous verses and chapters of Romans 12, um, to what Paul has said thus far and what has led up to now this exhortation to us. In this letter, if you, were, if you have your Bibles open, if you went all the way back to chapter 1, verse 7, you would see that this letter is written to all who are in Rome, who, beloved of God, who are called to be saints. But we know, of course, that all that was written and preached by the apostles was meant for all Christians, not just for those who are in Rome or if Ephesus or Colossa, whatever it may be. And so we are to hear this as it was intended for those who are all the beloved of God, all of those who are called to be saints. That is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the word saint at once calls attention to what we are. We are holy in the Lord's sight. And it calls attention to what we are called to be. We are called to be holy people. And so we might say it this way. We are the holy ones called to live holy lives. And Paul begins his letter in that way. He writes to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. But then we have to ask this question. Well, how is it that we have become holy? How is it that we have become saints And Paul then spends the next several chapters of the book of Romans telling us how this came to be. It is a mighty work of God through Jesus Christ. He reminds us already in chapter 1 that uh, we have a sinful nature. And because of the fall, there is no holiness in us, naturally speaking, in and of ourselves. He reminds us in Romans 1, Romans 2, that we are idolaters. We are, in fact, haters of the one true God. Our hearts have become factories of evil and idolatry. And left to ourselves, there would be nothing but judgment coming our way. He reminds us that we had no righteousness in and of ourselves. Nothing of any worth in God's sight. But then we get to Romans 3, verses 21 and following. Listen to uh, the good news Uh, that comes to us in the book of Romans, starting at verse 21 of chapter 3, reading to verse 26. Paul writes, but now, and so here is that button, so you see the contrast between what has been said up to this point and now the change, what God has done. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes, this righteousness from God comes Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him, that is Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so the fact that we are justified, the fact, in other words, that we are righteous in the sight of a holy God is an act of God himself. All of us, Paul reminds us, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who are good. There is none of us who rise above the level of anyone else. We are all sinful, equally so in God's sight. But here's the good news. God sent his beloved son, Jesus Christ, the promised one, the anointed one, the Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement. His suffering and death on the cross appeased or quieted the wrath of God against us. So that in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, Paul could write, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is true for both Jew and Gentile non-Jew, for anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on, starting at chapter 9, going all the way into chapter 11, he, can, he expresses his anguish. And again, we're leading up now to Romans 12, but I want us to get the whole picture. Paul begins to express his anguish uh, in chapter 9 and following for the fact that so many of his fellow Israelites had not believed and accepted Jesus as the promised Messiah. So much of history had gone by waiting for the Messiah to finally come. The perfectly righteous one had come into the world and he had done what no one else could do for us. And many of the Israelites rejected Jesus. And so Paul was in great anguish. And he expresses this in chapters 9 and following uh, that so many of his brethren had not believed. They had, in fact, he says in chapter 10 verse 3, sought to establish their own righteousness and not submitted to the righteousness of God. That is the righteousness that God had provided in his son. And so he asked the question in chapter 11, had God cast the Jews away then? And he answers, certainly not in chapter 11 verse 1. He was living proof of that. He was an, an Israelite. And so were the first Christians in the days of the early church. And Paul speaks of a time in chapter 11 when God would again bring in many who were descended from Abraham of the Jewish bloodline, many to whom he would show mercy in time. But for now, he describes them as broken off branches. And he describes us, the Gentiles, as branches who are grafted in. But here's the thing. He warns us that this ought to not make us arrogant, cocky, haughty, prideful. Instead, he says in chapter 11, verses 9 to, uh, or 19 to 22, he says, You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, he says, but be afraid. For if God did not spear the natural branches, he will not spear you either. And so this warning comes to us now, the, the New Testament church, those who have been brought in, outsiders who are outside of the covenant, brought into the kingdom of heaven. And this is what we have to have ringing in our ears, this warning. You know, after all the buildup, all that God, uh, we, we are reminded that God has done, and this warning that we are grafted in branches. We have to have this warning of Paul now ringing in our ears as we listen to our passage. It is by God's grace that we have been saved, but we are not to become arrogant. We are not to become prideful. Instead, we are to ask, in light of all of this, this wonderful good news, how are we to respond? How are we to live? 
And Paul then answers that question in the following chapters. And so let us consider at least part of his answer in the first three verses of Romans 12. Our theme this this, uh, evening as we summarize what we learn here in these three verses is this. Christ exhorts us, engrafted saints, to live lives of devotion to him. Christ exhorts us, engrafted saints, to live lives of devotion to him. We'll see in the first place that that includes uh, sacrificial living, and in the second place, transformational living. But as Christ exhorts us, engrafted saints, to live lives of devotion to him, we see in the first place that this includes sacrificial living. In verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, the word urge here in the Greek literally means to call alongside someone. So picture, for instance, going on a long walk, a long journey, on a hike, and you call someone to walk beside you and to go with you on this journey. But the word in the Greek is actually stronger than just invite. You're not just inviting someone, you know, I'd like you to come along. It's your choice or not, uh, if you want to or not, but it would be nice. It's, it's, it's stronger than that. There's a sense of urgency to it. Uh, we could uh, translate it this way, uh, or, or we, it, would be, it would sound more like this. You have to go with me. It's absolutely crucial that you go with me. Uh, it's very important that you do. And so there's that sense of urgency when Paul uh, uh, calls us to, to walk alongside, when he calls, uh, urges us on in the Christian life. We can sum, uh, translate it, uh, summon, or even command or exhort. And Paul, of course, of, of course uh, commands us here in his apostolic authority, speaking by the Holy Spirit of Christ as Christ continues to direct his church now through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul exhorts us in light of what he had said previously. And the word therefore alerts us to that. The word therefore uh, looks back, as we know, at what has been taught in order to apply it. A foundation has been laid, explanations have been given, Positions have been postulated, and the therefore comes to say, so what now? To what does this call me? How must I respond to what has been said? And notice that Paul addresses us as brethren. It's a term of deep affection and unity. And we're we're reminded again that there is a greater relationship than even blood relatives that Christians share. We are all together saved by the blood of Christ. We are all fellow sinners who have been sanctified in him. Together we are now God's children and we are together heirs of his kingdom. And this is true because, as Paul reminds us here, because of the mercy of God. And the word translated mercy actually is an adjective, not a noun. And so it should be really translated merciful or compassionate. And what, what makes Christianity amazing is that God gives to us what we do not deserve because he is merciful and compassionate. He forgives our sins. He restores us as his children. He gives us new life, new hope, and all of this, not because of anything we have done, but out of his great compassion. In mercy, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to suffer the consequences of our sin upon himself, and through him, we have forgiveness. Why? Because God is merciful and for no other reason. And because he is merciful and compassionate, he now goes the extra mile. He gives us this additional information, this exhortation. 
It's not enough that he has saved us. He also tells us now how we are to live in thankfulness, how we are to respond. Well, how are we to respond? We are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, when we hear this kind of language of offer, sacrifice, if we are familiar with our Bibles at all, our mind should immediately take us back into the Old Testament, to the Old Testament sacrifices. In the Old Testament, we hear the word sacrifice, and uh, we, can, we can immediately hear the sound of the buying sheep, the mowing bulls, and the bleating goats. And the word sacrifice and offering takes our minds back to the Old Testament laws, which commanded that these animals be brought to the temple or the tabernacle because of the sins of Israel. We can see it in our mind's eye, the altar, and the priest with his knife at the ready, and the animal is slaughtered and his blood is poured out. In some cases, its entire body is then burned up. In some cases, just certain parts of the animal's body. And Hebrews 10 verse 11 gives us a picture of, of the continuous constant operations that took place at the temple and at the tabernacle. It reminds us that this priest stood ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Until the coming of Christ, it was never ending. Lambs, bulls, and goats were offered up to make atonement, that is to quiet the wrath of God against sin. But as the author of Hebrews reminds us, it was a temporary solution. He reminds us that these sacrifices could never take away sin. It was like putting a band-aid on a very serious wound that really needs stitches. So, but we, we slap a little band-aid on there just to, to keep things going or, or we have a leaky pipe in the house which really needs the attention of a, a real plumber but we wrap a little duct tape around it. It's a temporary fix. It doesn't really fix the problem. It's just a help until better can be done. And indeed, brothers and sisters, better has been done because the Lamb of God has come. And he has taken away the sins of the world. And he did that by giving his life as a sacrifice. And having given himself as a sacrifice, he now calls us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Now again, always remember that every single word in the Bible is chosen very specifically by the Holy Spirit. And so when we read a word like living sacrifices, there's a lot more to it than uh, we can see on the surface or then meet the eye. By living sacrifices here, Paul is drawing a contrast between us and what was offered in the Old Testament. We're reminded that we offer a much better sacrifice than the Old Testament lambs and bulls and goats. The animals, keep in mind, that were placed upon the altar were lifeless. We are to be living sacrifices our sacrifice that we are called to bring to the Lord Jesus Christ is voluntary, it is active, as opposed to the animals that were, their lives were given involuntarily and they were passive. And we are to be living sacrifices in that we are to be eager and zealous. We are to be pursuing the kinds of sacrifices that are pleasing to God. The sacrifices that we bring to the Lord is to be ongoing and continuous not like the Old Testament offerings which were burned up and consumed by the altar fire. And so in contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices, ours is really lifelong. Paul describes that sacrifice also as holy, sacri uh, holy sacrifices that we are to bring to the Lord. Now holiness, boys and girls, has to do with purity, cleanliness, sinlessness. 
We are to bring our bodies and make our bodies like living, holy sacrifices to the Lord uh, out of purity and cleanliness and sinlessness. And here we're reminded of something amazing that this is how we are in Christ. We are holy in God's sight. As hard as it is to believe sometimes, washed by the blood of Christ, we are holy in God's sight. In the Old Testament, the animals offered had to be free from defect, as you know. No animal was to be brought to the temple or tabernacle with broken bones. No sick animal, no blemished animal, no blind animal. And these animals that were flawless, that were brought to the temple and tabernacle, were actually picturing what we are now in Christ. We are holy. We are free from defect. We are flawless in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what makes our service to God acceptable in his sight. The fact that we are already holy in Christ. And so it is only fitting that we present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. But then we have to ask this question, what does sacrificial living look like? Now, there's so much that could be said on this, and we'll have to confine our thoughts to maybe just a, a few things this afternoon, but I think one of the, uh, one of the, the best ways that we can uh, describe sacrificial living is, is following what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24. Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus said this, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone desires to, follow, uh, to, to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now we're talking about what is sacrificial living. And I think Jesus sums it up best here in his own words. Sacrificial living then involves, to a large extent, self-denial. It means avoiding and refusing to indulge in the thoughts, words, and deeds that we now know are offensive to God. It means never being ashamed of Christ, that we speak of him, that we defend his name, that we represent him wherever we are and among whomever we are. We deny ourselves and we always show forth Christ living in us. Self-denial means independence on Christ, not giving in so easily to the sins that we so easily indulge in before. And so it means denying our eyes what they so desperately want to see. Our tongues, what they so achingly want to say. Denying our ears what they yearn to hear. Our feet where they, where they desire to stray. We will begin as we live sacrificial lives, denying ourselves, we begin to discipline our bodies, bringing it into submission. And let us remember that it's not merely a matter of doing or saying certain things. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7 tells us that the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord can see things that no CT scan on earth can see. He sees the truth of whether we love him or not, whether we really desire to live for him or not, and if we are coming near to him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. Sacrificial living includes as well what the apostle says in Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2. He writes of laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and running the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. In other words, the things that held us back before, 
the anchors that weighed us down and were, as it were, weights on our feet. They have to go. And notice how the, the inspired author of Hebrews speaks of sin here as something that entangles or ensnares. We all have things in our lives that ensnare us, that trap us, that pull us back into sin again. You know, we can be going along really well. And then you put us with a certain bunch of people or even an old buddy. And what happens? We go back to our old, our old ways again very easily, don't we? There are people, there are places that we can go to that we should avoid that uh, entices us to sin. There are things we can think about that we ought to be avoiding, striving with the help of the Holy Spirit because once we begin that thinking process, it takes us down the wrong road. There are things that we ought to be avoiding in this life, especially in the day and age in which we live. And I think, I, know, I think we know what I'm talking about. Things like computers, things like Facebook, Twitter. And I don't mean that these things are in and of themselves bad, but we know where these things can lead us. We know the pages that they could uh, prompt us to go on to. Things that we have to be very, very careful of in this day and age so that we begin to avoid these things and we begin to live lives that show that we are denying ourselves, that we are making our, our lives living sacrifices for the Lord our God. There are things in this life that if we let them, people, places, things, they will anchor us and they will ensnare us and they are like bait to us. But once we begin to take a nibble, we're pulled in more and more until the trap snaps shut. And so whatever we keep tripping over or kept tripping over that we, keep, we kept getting caught up in, anything that led us into sin, we have to begin to avoid these things. And we must run the race that is before us. And, and we're reminded with a verse like this that the Christian life is not a, it's not a, a sprint. It's a marathon. And like a marathon... There will be times when we want to quit, when we want to take a shortcut, when we want to cheat. There will be distractions along the way, and there will be inclines, and there will be declines, but we must be dedicated, and we must be finding our strength in the right place, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what sacrificial living looks like. The author of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, speaks as well of continually offering the sacrifice of praise to God. And so again, we're thinking, what, is this, what are these spiritual sacrifices uh, that we ought to be offering to God? We are to uh, offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And so uh, as we are now desirous of living for the Lord, we will begin to live worshipful lives. Every moment of our lives. Lives in which God is honored in everything we think of, speak and do. We will use our lips to sing praises to his name and to speak of his glory and his greatness to those who don't know him and those who do. And so in this, in this way we will begin to live sacrificial lives in thankfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ in light of what he has done for us.
But as Christ exhorts us in grafted saints to live lives of devotion to him, we also want to see in the second place that this includes not only sacrificial living, but transformational living. In verse 2, Paul writes, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now Paul calls us here to two things that represent the difference between who we were and who we are. Before conversion, we were of the world. We were drinking in the teachings of the world. We were uh, imbibing the counsel of the world. But now... We must no longer be that way. We are not the people that we used to be, and we are to live like it. And so we must no longer be conforming to this world. Now, the word uh, that is translated to conform um, means to, uh, to form or to mold. The sense is that something takes on the look of something else. Something takes on the look of something else. I don't know if this is helpful or not, Maybe they'll try this illustration. Once in a while, my wife makes these delicious sponge cakes. And when she makes them, she pours them into a bunt pan. I think maybe most of us or all of us know what a bunt pan is. And then when she, is that cake is done and she flips it over and, and lets it out, the cake comes out with this nice round shape looking like it has wedges. And that's because the batter conformed to the grooves and the shape of the pan. Or mom might have jello molds that she makes jello in sometimes, boys and girls, and the, uh, the jello conforms to the shape of the jello pan. Uh, same idea. And what Paul is telling us here is that we, as God's children, we are not to conform, we are not to take on the shape, we are not to begin to look like the world, at least not anymore. The way the world does things, their attitudes, their view of life, the way they deal with problems, is different to God's ways as set out in the Bible. Take a simple thing like sexual relations. The world has their three-date rules. They have no problem with sex before marriage, promiscuity, living together, and if worse comes to worst, abortion. The world, especially in our day, makes decisions and changes laws based not upon right and wrong, good or evil, but upon how many people are already doing it. And so we have abortion legalized, we have same-sex marriage now legalized, uh, euthanasia is on the way, that's the next push. There's a push for the legalization of pot, and it's based upon, well look, how many people are doing it? It's happening already, why not just make it legal? And that's how the, the, the world makes laws and changes laws. And the pressure is on as well for us, brothers and sisters. Our Christian schools are already being pushed to include support groups for those who are attracted to the same gender. The world rejecting the teachings of the church as old-fashioned and restrictive gather to themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. And so no longer is the world interested in what the Bible has to say or what the church has to say. The new teachers of our culture are YouTube, television, Facebook, Instagram, Wikipedia, Twitter, Taylor Swift, these are the teachers of our culture. As people become more irreligious, self-centered, and self-willed. And so we must not be conforming 
to the world. We are not to be striving to be like the world and looking like them more and more. Instead, we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, the, the, the Greek word translated transformed is the same word from which we dis- derive uh, the, word, the English word metamorphosis. Now, maybe some of the boys and girls here have never heard that word before, but I think you learn about that maybe around grade five or six. And so you'll learn that when a tadpole uh, changes to a frog or a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, we call that process metamorphosis. It's from the Greek word that is translated in our Bibles, transform. It's a change in form. Uh, It's used, for instance, at the transfiguration of Jesus when Jesus was transformed before the eyes of his disciples and they saw him in all his glory and majesty shining brilliantly where before he had just looked like an ordinary man. And so we are to be transformed. We are to be changed. We are to be progressively changing, not in shape or form like a tadpole changing to a frog, but changing in heart and mind. In fact, Romans 8 verse 29 tells us that those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 tells us that we are being transformed into the image of the glory of the Lord. We are becoming and we are to pursue becoming like Jesus more and more. Well, how is this to happen in our lives? Paul tells us, We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, our thoughts, our emotions, our wills, our attitudes, these things need to be renewed in us. And so self-focused, worldly thinking must be changing to God-focused, godly thinking. Our fallen minds need to be renewed, reshaped. And that, unfortunately, brothers and sisters, does not happen overnight. There is no magic pill for this. There is no Christian Red Bull that you can drink to be transformed overnight, immediately, in an instant. The renewal of our minds comes from patient dedication. It means simply assembling with God's people for worship every Lord's Day, twice, to be continually learning and growing. It means being consistent in our Bible reading. Because in the Bible, we have everything we need to know for faith and life. In the Bible, we have the law of God, which we thankfully hear every Sunday morning. We talk about transformational living. How are we to be transformed? We are to be renewed unto law keepers, no longer law breakers in thought, word, and deed. And we are to be reading and studying the scriptures of God so that the Holy Spirit will be changing us from inside out. It means spending quality time in prayer, Asking the Lord to transform our hearts and no longer allow us to be conformed to this world. Christian living, renewing of our minds means as well reading at least, and I'm being very gracious here, but reading at least two good Christian books every year. Renewing our minds includes and, and this is it's, it's amazing and, and uh, wonderful in the day and age we live. We have access to so much. But attending or listening to conference tapes or, um, and, and learning from, from the best of the best, the scholars of our day and age, so, there is no excuse for not um, uh, growing in our faith. And, and uh, there's no excuse for us to be saying, you know, my mind is not being renewed because we have access to so much teaching in this day and age. It means as well enjoying good 
emphasis on good, Christian fellowship, being influenced by, uh, by fellow Christians who will lead us in the right path and influence us in the right direction. And above all, because again, we can't do this on our own, we must be doing all of this in dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul tells us in Galatians 5.16 to walk in the Spirit. That means that we are to give ourselves to the Spirit's direction every day. Well, how does that happen? It doesn't happen if we go up on a mountain and meditate and it will come to us. We must be spending time in God's Word. We must know what God's will is. And so we must be reading our Bibles and we must be seeking the Holy Spirit to guide us in the way of obedience to God's word so that we follow God's will, not our own. And you know, that's why we can never say in this life, as sadly even some Christians do, oh, I know enough. I can relax now. We have to be continually learning and relearning and plumbing the depths of scripture. And here's why this is so important as well. Paul says that you may uh, test and approve what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's all kinds of pressures that we face today that challenge what we believe. Things we have taken for, for granted for centuries as the church, these things are now being challenged, even by whom we would term fellow Christians, fellow believers, at least members of churches. They're challenging things that we have believed and held to for centuries. Even those we consider fellow Christians may be willing to compromise on their beliefs, set aside what the Bible says, or indulge in worldly behavior. But if we are growing in faith and knowledge, if we are upholding God's word as the final authority over us, if we are living in dependence upon the Holy Spirit of Christ, we will be much better equipped to discern God's will in this world. One final thought in verse 3. Paul writes, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. And Paul warns us here to think soberly. That is, we are to be clear-headed, clear-minded. We're not to allow our judgment to be clouded. We can be reminded here of what he says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The warning here is that we are never to become careless. Our salvation is all of grace. Let us never forget that. And let us never forget the source of more grace. Let us see ourselves for who we are. Let us see our continuing need. And let us live sacrificial lives. Amen.